A Greek story tells how outside the city of Thebes there sat a monster called the Sphinx. To every passerby, she put a riddle. What creature has two feet, three feet, and four feet, and is weakest when it has most feet? Those who failed to solve the riddle, she destroyed. The menace was eventually removed by Oedipus, who answered that it is man who crawls on all fours as a baby, then walks upright on two feet, and finally moves only with the aid of a stick. My friends, the world we live in is a sphinx. And it'll destroy us unless we can answer its riddle. But this time man is not the answer. That person you shaved this morning or whose hair you combed. No, neither he nor she is the answer to life's riddle. Matter of fact, we ourselves are part of that riddle. We can say that we're halfway between the, the scale, halfway along the scale of magnitudes between the atom and the star, but we still haven't said much, have we? What is the answer then to the riddle of the Sphinx? For thousands of years now, there have been some that said the answer was Christianity. The Christ of the cross and the cross of Christ. Perhaps Chesterton was right when he said Christianity hasn't been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and so not tried. You may remember the book by Bruce Barton, What Can a Man Believe? He told an interesting anecdote that went like this. Some upperclassmen assembled one night in a college hall to listen to two speakers. A bishop of distinguished service and great spiritual power was one of them, and a public lecturer widely advertised as a professional agnostic was the other. The plan was for each man to present his own philosophy of life. The audience, while not large, was very earnest, and obviously looked for a spirited debate. The bishop spoke first. He was grey-haired now and a trifle bent. The old man had started his service in the foreign missionary field, and more than once in his youth had risked his life for the faith. On his return to this country, he had held influential pastorates in many cities, becoming the friend and confidant of men of every sort. He knew all there is to know of human hopes and fears, sufferings and joys, achievements and tragedies. Yet his fine face was ruddy and untroubled, as the face of a little child. No one had looked, who looked at him could doubt that he had in truth cast his burdens upon the Lord. And so now he spoke to these inquirers, and his tone was deep and sympathetic. Said he, Nothing that is worthwhile in life can be proved. Men speak of depending on science, but science itself depends upon faith. It assumes that every effect must have an adequate cause. That's a tremendous assumption that no one can prove. Science assumes that the world which each man builds up inside his mind corresponds to the outside world of reality. That the universe which you see is the same universe which I see. That's another great act of faith. All scientific discoveries have been made by men who believe more than their eyes could see or their fingers handle. He who does not look beyond the facts, said Darwin, will hardly see the facts. By which he meant that the eyes of the imagination are faith. 
must first see what may be before the eyes of the flesh can see what is. I cannot prove to you that there's any purpose behind the universe, said the bishop. It may be the whole thing's a mere happening, a jest of circumstances, that we and all who've been before us or are to come after us are no more significant than the flies that live their whole existence in a single hour, or the bubbles that appear on the surface of the stream and break and reappear. I can't prove to you that this is not so. But my friends, no man can prove to you it is so. The existence of reason behind the universe, or its non-existence, are both beyond the power of finite minds to establish. And since therefore the choice is free between the two alternatives, I choose to accept the positive faith, for that faith gives significance to my life and to the lives of all men. It clothes me with conviction. It invests me with the right to go forward with firm step and head erect, as one who shall not perish. In place of worry and fear, it sets up hope and courage. It's the pathway to power. That was the bishop's remarks. And when he finished, the other speaker rose very slowly and looked down into the eager faces of those young men. He stood silent for what seemed a very long time, searching their eyes. I'm going to surprise you, my young friends, he said at last. Perhaps in a sense, I'll disappoint you. I'm an agnostic. Some of you have come here in the expectation that the bishop and I should vigorously disagree. You had expected that I should call the great sceptics of history to my aid and marshal the arguments that seem to prove that man's a creature of the moment, bound for oblivion. I confess this was my purpose when I came. But I've changed that purpose. I'm going to say only one thing to you, young men. It's this. If you can believe the things that our friend the bishop has been saying, then in God's name believe them. The texture of my mind is such that I cannot go further than to say I do not know. If you can go further, if you can have a positive faith, then with all my heart I congratulate you. I would give anything in the world if I could. For what the bishop has claimed for his faith is true, Scepticism has no vitality. The motive power of progress is faith. He sat down and after a few minutes of rather embarrassed silence the meeting descended. The students were surprised, but the bishop much more so. He'd expected a fight, instead of which he'd listened to a testimony far more moving than his own. The almost tragic confession of one whose honest intellect would not let him go a step beyond the things that can be seen and heard and felt but who looked with hungry yearning into the richer lives of those who can believe and do. My dear friend, this morning may I ask you, with whom will you choose to side? With the agnostic or with the bishop? It will make all the world of difference. It will make a universe of difference. It will make an eternity of difference. But you say, I find it hard to believe. This morning I want to offer you a key, a key to everything. There should be a shortcut to solving the riddle of life, some simple way of dealing with all of life's profundities, those enigmas that must need to be settled before effectual living can begin. If Christianity is the truth of God on belief in which the salvation of his creatures depends, we'd expect God would have prepared evidence sufficiently simple and conclusive to convince ordinary folks like you and me. And the purpose of these few minutes 
is to indicate that God has done just this. My friend, think on it. It can transform your life if you grasp this key to everything. Years ago in India, a Hindu chairman introduced a Christian speaker by saying, if what our friend says is not true, doesn't matter. But if what he says is true, nothing else matters. That's it, my friend. Christianity either matters tremendously or it doesn't matter at all. The most direct route through the labyrinth of religious and philosophical controversy is to answer this question. What was the real nature of the man who appeared 2,000 years ago in Palestine claiming to be a ransom for the sins of the world? You know, my friends, the New Testament makes the startling claim that our relationship to Jesus Christ is a matter of life and death. In 1 John 5.12 I read, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Did you know that Christ is the only person known to history who's claimed divinity and yet who has been accounted sane by the human race? The founders of other religious systems, such as Mohammedanism, Buddhism and Hinduism, they didn't claim to be God incarnate. This is where Christianity differs from all other religions. Christ spoke and lived as a being whose dwelling place is eternity, and he alone of all mankind has convinced multitudes of all ages, races and walks of life that his claims to divinity were genuine. My friends, seekers for truth should not begin with secondary questions, such as difficulties in the Old Testament or the origin of evil or the problem of pain or any one of a thousand others. The truth of Christianity stands or falls with the person of its founder, and that's where we ought to start. Consider the words of Christ as though we too had lived two millenniums ago in the ancient city of Jerusalem. In imagination, let us join the crowd that listened to the melodious yet earnest voice of the former carpenter of Nazareth. His words are breathtaking. Pointing to the orb blazing in the heavens, he says, I am the light of the world. And thus comparing himself to the sun of the natural world, Jesus claims to be the author and preserver of all life and of all truth, the fountain of energy, strength and knowledge of all things good. On other occasions he claimed things such as these, Matthew 28, 18, that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. Mark 4, 39 to 41, where we read that he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He had great authority over nature. In Matthew 16:27, he claimed that the angels of heaven belonged to him, that the Son of Man would one day return with his angels. In Luke 14:26, he said that people should love him above their own family, even more than their own life. Indeed, he said that no one could be his disciple unless he, Christ, was loved more than the follower loved his own life. In Luke 19.10, he claims to be the saviour of all mankind. In Matthew 9.2, that he has the right to forgive sins. In Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, he claims to be the final judge of all men, of you and me. In John 8.58 and 17.5, Jesus said he existed before Abraham. 
that he enjoyed glory with God before the world was. So here are some of the claims of Christ. And they were claims believed in so implicitly that he was prepared to risk his own life as he advocated them. But not only his own life, my friends, the lives of his friends. Think on it. He foretold that his followers would be persecuted and put to death. And yet he intimated that such a fate was a light thing in comparison with the importance of establishing his sovereignty over the world. Christ's assurance of who he was even survived the test of apparent failure. On the cross, after being rejected by his own nation and religious leaders, he could still behave as king of eternity, promising heaven to a penitent criminal and interceding as calmly for his enemies as though he were walking the pavements of a country town on a sunny day. Furthermore, my friends, it would appear that this man's deeds matched his words. No man ever acted as this man acted. Could one flaw be found in the fourfold narrative of the Gospels? The whole picture would be blemished and Christ's claims dissipated. But no such flaw exists. Have you ever thought of this? That had Christ never lived, it would have required someone his equal to invent the unique story of his life and invented his marvellous sayings. There's another puzzler. Despite Christ's insight into the nature of man and his understanding regarding truth and morality, he himself seemed never conscious of personal guilt. This is where Jesus of Nazareth differed from all other good men. Thus it's been said of Christ that if he was good, then he was God. For good men do not lie regarding themselves. My dear friend, get this. The most natural explanation for Christ is the supernatural. A simple but effective way of testing his claims is to consider his predictions about the future. Think first upon his predictions regarding his own influence in the world as his spiritual son when he said, I am the light of the world. How does this tremendous claim survive the test of 2,000 years of subsequent history? It's because Christianity advocates the physical and mental development of society, of human beings made in God's image, as well as emphasising their spiritual values, that civilization has always followed in the wake of Christianity. Barbaric communities have been entirely transformed by the efforts of such men as Livingston, Moffat, Carey and Peyton. Headhunters have given up. Cannibals have been chained. Furthermore, education has always been the aim of the followers of Jesus because he it was who said, you'll know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Christianity, with its stress on human worth, is the basis of all true democracy, all true freedom. Christ placed a high estimate upon men as the sons of God and since the preaching of his gospel, efforts to protect and to preserve life and to increase happiness have swelled an unceasing stream of benevolence. For example, in the degenerate society of Christ's time, infanticide was a common practice of parents unwilling to support children. Sons and daughters were murdered without compunction. But that's now a rarity. And then take slavery. There are approximately 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. They were the property of a privileged few. Today, slavery of that type is almost unknown. Consider also philanthropy, organisations such as those fostered by Florence Nightingale, George Mueller, Dr Bernardo and others had their mainspring in the love of humanity that always follows in the wake of a love for Christ. 
not atheists that usually establish orphanages or old folks' homes or Red Cross units. As for morality, the Sermon on the Mount and the example of the spotless character of Jesus have done more to enable men to overcome inherent evil tendencies and attain to righteousness than all the philosophy of centuries. Thousands from every generation have testified to change lives, to the substitution of love for hate, temperance for intemperance, cleanliness for filth, purposeful and beneficial activity for aimless and sinful pursuits. Those discoveries most beneficial to humanity can usually be traced to men who found in Christ their inspiration and their strength. Sir Isaac Newton, probably the greatest of all scientists, claimed that his findings came in answer to prayer. Lord Kelvin, famous for his nautical inventions and electrical researches, made a similar claim. Kepler, Herschel, famous astronomers, Lord Lister, discovery, discoverer of the antiseptic methods in surgery, James Simpson, who introduced chloroform. Hosts of others, my friends, who forwarded civilization, were energized by devotion to the Galilean, who declared himself the light of the world. Many of the greatest literary, art and musical creations have been inspired by the religion of Jesus. Paradise Lost, Dandy's Inferno, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress are acknowledged classics of the world, while the Lord's Supper is regarded as a masterpiece in art. In music we have Handel's Messiah. All of these found their themes in Christianity. And these facts remarkably fulfil other words of Jesus. Words that prove his foreknowledge. Said he, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, meaning by the cross, will draw all men unto me. What a staggering claim. As if we were to say, if so-and-so goes to the electric chair, he'll gain millions of followers through all ages. If this man was not what he claimed, how can we explain his influence on the world? The fact that he has indeed been its son, that he has drawn millions from all races to his banner. If he were only a Jewish peasant, how did he foresee the enduring and beneficial influence that his life was to shed over all mankind. Who revealed to him the revolution, morals, habits and social life that was to succeed him about three days before his death? The disciples heard him say, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Thus Christ claimed that for as long as heaven and earth would last, a peasant's words would be known and echoed from generation to generation. Civilizations would fade, Empires would be overturned, systems and isms would appear and pass, but the sentiments of a penniless Nazarene would shine as a beacon above the tumult of the centuries. Each passing year lends its witness to the fulfilment of this amazing prediction. Inscribed on the stones of edifices, printed in millions of books, indelibly written on the hearts of men, are the imperishable words of Jesus. How often I have used his words on occasions of birth, in conducting marriages or funerals, in times of joy and in times of grief. His words flow again and again as inspiration, as a healing balm. Only one who was divine could speak as Christ spoke. Only one divine, the one who fashions the future, could foretell the unfading influence of his own words. On one occasion he said, upon this rock, meaning himself, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That explains his previous statements to some extent. His words were to be preserved. His gospel of good news unlimited was to be preached by an institution that was to last as long as the world. The church, 
made up of all those that believe in Jesus Christ as their Saviour, Catholic and Protestant, whoever they might be. Men and women of every generation would follow him. No opposition and fierce persecution, that's what he meant by the gates of hell, would continually threaten to extirpate them. Christ predicted the persecution of Christians in these words, Then shall I deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you'll be hated of all nations for my name's sake. If they've persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. The time cometh that whoever killeth you will think he doeth God's service. The Jews were the first to persecute the Christians, whom they regarded as renegades. But next came the Roman emperors. They sought to crush out the unorthodox sect. Christians were captured and coated with tar. They became the beacons in Nero's beer gardens. Again during the Middle Ages, millions who wished to live by the Bible perished. And then the dimensions to which his church would grow. They were no mystery to Jesus. Listen to him again. The kingdom of heaven, that is the gospel, is like to a grain of mustard seed, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it's grown, it's the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. On the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 accepted the gospel, the church grew miraculously despite persecution. Until in the days of Constantine in the 4th century, Christianity was so widespread that the emperor himself embraced it. Christ even knew that many would enter his church without a genuine change of heart. He knew that the greatest peril of the church would not be from without, but from within. So on one occasion he said, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. Those who condemn Christianity because of church-going hypocrites, they've been forestalled by the founder himself. Just prior to his crucifixion, Jesus calmly promised his disciples that the day would come when his teachings would be published wherever there were communities of men and women. This gospel of the kingdom, said he, will be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. This prediction is now being fulfilled. The 19th century was a century of missions. Prior to World War I and II, men on fire for Christ penetrated into Africa, Burma, India, China, and the island groups of the South Seas. All nations today are hearing the gospel preached to them in their own tongues, either through the living preacher or through communications media. You, my friend, can have a part in that. One striking aspect of this prophecy is found by studying its context. This universal preaching was to occur suddenly, to take place in the last generation. Only the 16th century invention of printing and the 20th century invention of radio and modern means of transportation could fulfill this specification of the worldwide dispersion of truth in a generation. Christ's view of the future embraced the fate of his own nation. He foretold the destruction of the capital city, Jerusalem. He foretold the uprooting of the temple, the dispersion of the Jews among all nations. In Luke 21, he said, For great distress shall be upon the earth, and wrath upon this people. They'll fall by the edge of the sword, and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trodden down by the heathen, until the times of the heathen are fulfilled. What a prophecy! fulfilled over 20 centuries. He foretold our day, my friends. He foretold the wars and rumours of wars, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, the stress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, looking after those things coming on the earth. My friend, 
He could foretell the future because he held the future. Christ is God. And here then is our desired shortcut for solving life's riddle, for solving the riddle of the Sphinx. Christ and the scriptures he inspired constitute the way and the truth and the life. Your destiny, my friends, depends upon your relation to him who claimed to be the Lord of glory and the saviour of the world. Centuries ago, Pontius Pilate, confronted by Jesus Christ, washed his hands of him. His wife had sent him a message, have nothing to do with that just man. Not for the first time did a wife ask her husband an impossibility. My friends, we cannot wash our hands of Christ. It's impossible to have nothing to do with him. Pilate thought he was free. Actually, he was a slave. Soon the situation will be reversed and Pilate will stand before Christ, the judge. And so must you, and so must I. My dear friend, it's impossible to have nothing to do with Jesus. He made the world. He redeemed it. He is the world's judge. There is an alternative, my friend, to the attitude of Pilate. Think on the thief on the cross. He knew he was helpless. Law hadn't helped him any. He'd been through many a trial by law. But here beside him was one who was praying for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Know not what they do? He was hope. And the thief caught at it. Painfully. Hopefully. He whispered, Lord, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. And like wonderful music came the reply. And the reply is for you, my friend. The reply is for me. For all that look to Jesus as their only hope. Listen to his words. To one who could do no works for him. Listen to his words. Verily, I say unto you today, you shall be with me in paradise.